Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 14 this morning. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, we always want to give you a Bible. And so I'm going to say this just about every single week, right? But we have Bibles right over at the welcome table that are our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. So please do take us up on that. Ephesians 5. 8 through 14. Oh no, not again. Beads of sweat began to form on his forehead as Tope Colioso cranked and cranked and cranked at this crummy old generator. It wouldn't start again. There he was, this 20-year-old kid. He's fresh out of college and he's out in the middle of nowhere in this tiny, remote village in the plains of Nigeria, a community that is so small, so remote, so insignificant that you cannot even hope to find it on Google Earth. Tope had traveled some distance, carting an old, bulky film projector, a makeshift projection screen, a loudspeaker, and this sputtering hunk of metal that he was pulling on that was supposed to provide the power for him to show the Jesus film to this desolate village. There was no time for him to find a new one. It would take an entire day to track another one down, and and everything was already set up. It was pitch black out, and and this large crowd that had gathered, many of whom had traveled long distances just to be here to watch this film, was growing restless and ready to leave. What was Tope going to do? Without the generator, he couldn't even use the microphone that he brought with him. It wouldn't work. How would he be able to speak over the commotion of the crowd? How could he preach to them? They had no knowledge of Christ, and he, he himself had only been a believer for a couple of years. He felt so inadequate. How could they understand if they could not first see the film or even see him? I mean, it was so dark, he couldn't even make out their faces. Tope reached into his pocket, searching for a handkerchief to wipe the sweat off of his face. When his fingers fumbled, a small flashlight. With his heart pounding in his chest and prayers of gospel light going under his breath, Tope flipped on the flashlight and motioned for the crowd to quiet down and to be seated. Surrounded by the spiritual darkness of hundreds of pagans who worshipped fertility gods in this area of rural Nigeria where witch doctors outnumbered Bibles at least 30 to 1, in a fitting metaphor of the gospel, unworthy Tope held his flashlight against the vast night sky and began to preach on the darkness of sin and the good news of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Now I'm sure that you can imagine just how overwhelmed Tope must have felt, not just by the physical darkness and the the difficulty of, of not getting that generator to start, but the spiritual darkness. I mean, how could the light of the gospel shine in the midst of such overpowering darkness? How could the light of the gospel shine? How could he stand? I mean, in his own heart. I'm like, he had so much to learn, so much to apply if he was going to be faithful to to proclaim this gospel truth. It would be so much easier for him to just run and hide or or to jump in with the crowd. But have you ever felt that way? 
How could the light of the gospel overpower the darkness we see in the world? How could the light of the gospel penetrate the darkness in my own heart? These are the questions that Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 provide answers to. Though at times we feel like Tope, these unworthy servants of Jesus, needing the light of the gospel, given an overwhelming task to be light to the world, the gospel exposes darkness. It exposes the darkness in our hearts. It exposes darkness in the world. And it's exposure that is the path of gospel transformation. From death to life, from darkness to light, and in the believer from one degree of glory to another. Our passage this morning is all about exposure. The good news of Jesus Christ transforms darkness into light. And it does so by confronting the places where we strive to find our identity. These little idols that we worship and it reveals them and it reminds us of who we are in Jesus. Ephesians 5, 8-14 through 14 then calls us to God-dependent action. That by His grace we are to take no part in these unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this passage gives us hope. Hope of the transforming power of the gospel. That we do not need to fear the darkness. That we do not need to walk in the darkness. Instead, we are to expose it to light. And as those who are trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin and the hope of eternal life, then this passage calls us this morning to, as children of light, walk in light. As children of light, walk in light. So please read the text with me. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. It says, but at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For if anything becomes visible, it is light. Therefore it says, Arise, O sleeper, wake from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ confronts darkness in three ways in this passage. First, it reminds us of who we are. We are children of light. If you are in Christ, your new identity is a new creation. You are children of light. Second, that in light of our true identity, it then calls us to Christ-centered, God-dependent action, that we are to expose the darkness. And third, this passage provides us with hope, a sure promise of the good news as we seek to walk in our new identity, that Christ's light will shine. There will be transformation. And so first, let's be reminded of our identity that we may walk as children of light. Now, the Christian life is to be categorically different than who we were apart from Christ. 
This distinction between someone who follows Christ and someone who doesn't follow Christ is not simply a matter of doctrinal beliefs. Well, this guy over here does not subscribe to these doctrinal truths, and this one over here does. That distinction is not to be characterized in terms of, well, this person over here, apart from Christ, well, you know, he's basically good, but this person over here who has Christ is a little bit better, right? A little bit nicer, maybe not so grouchy, not so caught up in worldly things. Maybe they listen to Christian music or go to church and on and on and on. The distinction between someone who doesn't follow Christ and someone who does follow Christ is not in terms of, well, this person over here that doesn't follow Christ is imperfect, but this one over here is supposed to be or is somehow perfect. That's not the distinction that the gospel makes. That's not what I mean when I say that the Christian life is to be categorically different than someone who doesn't follow Christ. Now what I mean by categorically different is this. That apart from Christ, we were all dead in our sin. And we were under God's just wrath for our rebellion against him. Those who are in Christ have been made alive by God's redeeming grace. We were all once enslaved to our sin. We loved and we served ourselves and we pursued the things of this world in the hope that we could satisfy our soul's longings in those things. But those who are in Christ have been freed from those selfish, enslaving desires and now love God and long to serve him more than they want to love and serve themselves. Not that they don't sin, but that they no longer love their sin and they desire to turn away from their sin and follow Christ. Apart from Christ, we all once lived for our own glory. Those who are in Christ now understand who God is and just how much he has loved us and that he has sent his one and only son to live a life that we can never live and to lay that life down as a sacrifice for our sin. And that through faith in him and his resurrection, we now have the hope of reconciliation. We now have the hope of transformation. We now have the hope of change. That we can live with him forever because of Christ's completed work on our behalf. We are now his beloved children. And so we no longer live for our glory. We live for his glory and for the good of others. The distinction between a Christian and someone who doesn't follow Christ is not simply in terms of doctrines, nor expectations, nor religious practices, nor outward behaviors. The distinction is a transformation of heart. You have got to get this. Those who are in Christ now love God. Their desires and longings have changed. They now long for his will and his purposes to be accomplished first, ahead of their own. They have now received the truth of God and his power through the work of the Holy Spirit to trust in him and now walk in obedience by faith. Those who are in Christ have a new identity and they long to live in that new identity. And so, 
Paul uses converse language to show just how dire and drastic this distinction is. This contrast of heart, this contrast of relationship that we now have with God. He describes it in terms of death to life, from being hopeless and helpless, orphans and aliens under the wrath of God, to now beloved children who have been adopted and loved by God and have God's power now working in and through and for them. And in our text this morning, he says that life apart from Christ and life in Christ is as starkly distinct as darkness and light. I don't think it's necessary for me to flip light switches for you to understand the distinction between darkness and light, right? You get the metaphor. In verse 8 it says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Clearly a change has occurred. You were darkness, At one time, you were darkness. Not just that you were in darkness, but that you were darkness. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Ephesians, darkness represents ignorance, error, evil, and misery that comes from sinful hearts. It's Ignorance, error, evil, and misery that comes out of our sinful hearts. In particular, it signifies those who live in sin, live in immorality. It's a way of life for them. Well, let's just let, def- let Ephesians define it for us. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says we were dead in our sin. We were enslaved by our sin. We were condemned in our sin. Chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were all once far off. We were all divided. We were all hostile, both to God and to his people. The grace of the Father, the love of Christ was not upon us. The knowledge of truth and the unifying work of the Holy Spirit was not within us. Those who walk in darkness are, as it says in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, walking in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They have become corrupted by their deceitful desires. They lie and they teach what is false. They sin against each other in anger. They steal and they, take, uh, they live to take. They corrupt each other with their speech. They are full of bitterness and wrath and malice and curses. They are sexually immoral and impure and covetous idolaters. That is who we all were. You see, it's not simply that we were in darkness. Because that might imply that darkness is something that is outside of us. It's out there. 
right? And so the goal of being a Christian is to remove ourselves from the darkness. It's out there. I've got to be afraid. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you were darkness. At one time, you were darkness. You were intimately part of it. Darkness came out of you. You loved it. You taught it. You lived it. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, so what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You are not simply the product of the culture that you live in. It's not that we have just been exposed to so much darkness around us that we have just sort of mindlessly taken it all in. The darkness that we see in the world may influence us by example. It may tempt us to bind our hearts to it, and it certainly gives us ample opportunities to live out the desires of our hearts, but it does not make us darkness. No, we were darkness. And you have got to get that this morning. If you do not understand that darkness comes out of you, that you are intimately a part of it, you will always look and blame your problems, your issues as being something that's outside of you. It's something that's done upon you and that you just need to kind of remove yourself from the situation or whatever, but you're not looking at yourself. You're not looking at your soul in light of the gospel. You're saying it's out there when it's right here. It's inside my heart. I was darkness you were darkness and if you are here and you have not yet trusted in Christ you've not yet seen your need for his sacrifice his light shining in your life then you still remain darkness friends get that this morning it's not outside you it is within at one time We were all darkness. Everyone. But now, you are light in the Lord. You are only light in the Lord. There is no light apart from the Lord. The Lord is where the light comes from. And as you are in the Lord, you are light. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. In a less metaphorical way, light represents truth, knowledge, and holiness. And to that, I think that Jonathan Edwards rightly adds happiness in the Lord. Truth, knowledge, holiness, And happiness. Truth. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Knowledge. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. 
He has given us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He has enlightened the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God has made known to us the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it is through the church that he has brought to light the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God has given us the strength to comprehend with all the saints to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Holiness. He has called us saints, the holy people of God. We were chosen from before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before him. We are growing together into a holy temple in the Lord as we put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness or in the holiness and righteousness of the truth. Truth, knowledge, holiness, and happiness. Praising God for his glory, giving thanks for his many blessings in Christ, making melodies in our hearts to God. That's what it means to be light in the Lord, to receive the truth of the gospel, to know and to love the Son of God, to pursue holiness and devotion to God by faith through his grace, and to find our heart's true delight in him. That's what we've been given through our salvation in Christ. That's what Christ's work has accomplished on our behalf. That's what God's grace enables us to do. That's who we are. That's our new identity. And so we're to walk in it. To be who we now are. It's in light of that new identity that we have in Christ that Paul commands us, walk as children of light. He's not saying, pretend to be children of light. If you pretend sufficiently to be children of light, and you obey all the rules, then you will become children of light. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be who you now are in Christ. Live in your new identity. You are children of light. God has made you that. And so walk in it. Let the light be the manner in which you live. Because that is why we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This is why we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Not giving ourselves over to sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness or idolatry. We're not to become partners with them. This is why we're to imitate God and love as Christ loved us. And to walk in love and wisdom and the good works which God has prepared us beforehand to walk in him. Because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these good works. Let the manner... The pattern of your daily life show that you are children of light. Be who you now are. Or as Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Live in such a way that your words and your actions and your attitudes lead others to behold the glory of God. Of God. 
And you might be thinking, well, what does that look like? How do I do that practically in my life? Well, verse 9. For the fruit of light, that is the effect of light, the, the, what the light produces in your life is found in all that is good and right and true. We have concepts of what that means, right? Good, right, and true. We kind of know what is true when we hear it. We, we know what is good. We know what is right. Those things. Now, we've heard this before in chapter 4, verse 24. As we put off the old self, which belongs to that former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and renew our minds by meditating on the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and how we are these new creations in Christ and live in that new identity, and we seek to put on that new self created after the likeness of God in the holiness and righteousness of the truth. Sound familiar? We live in our new identity. We display goodness, righteousness, and truth. We do what is good and right and true. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Don't, we, we don't do what is good and right and true in order to gain a good standing with Christ. He's saying here, it's because of our new standing through the sacrifice of Christ that we now do what is good and right and true. It's our identity that leads to action, not our action that leads to identity. We can't get those mixed up. We don't do what is good to gain God's grace. We have received God's grace and are receiving God's grace continually so that we can now do what is good, so that we can walk as children of light. Okay, so then, how do we walk in light so that we do what is good and right and true? How do we do that? What what is that going to look like? Because I know that I don't always do what is good. I don't always do what is right. I don't always do what is true. Well, verse 10, Paul gives us the manner by trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is both a manner, how we go about doing something, but it is one that carries with it the force of the command, walk as children of light. So he said, this is how you do it, but you're to do it. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, a lot of times we skip over verse 10, but it gives us a lot of hope. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. God is not some cold, distant tyrant who demands our perfect obedience. Right? Do this and do it now. Do it perfectly. He he is our loving father who delights in our desire to follow him by wanting to please him. And so we look for those opportunities. We look for, how can I do that? How can I please the Lord? You know, in our house, we divide up chores. And usually the chore that falls on me is vacuuming the house. That's what I do. I vacuum the house. Well, this presents a dilemma for Will, okay? Because Will always wants to be with me. Will wants to be helpful, and Will is deathly afraid of the vacuum, okay? So what is Will's solution? I am going to help Daddy vacuum. And so what that means then is that instead of just kind of trucking through and getting the job done the way I want to get it done in in my allotted amount of time, that means that I have to hold the handle way, way down because Will has to touch it at all times. He cannot let go of that handle. Otherwise, he's too close, right? And we have to move 
forward really slowly because we've got, in addition to holding it real low and Will just kind of shuffling his feet, we've got that cord hanging there that he's got to watch out for. And going backwards is even slower because it's one thing if that loud, noisy vacuum is going that way, but it's completely another thing if it's coming back toward me. And so Will literally kind of goes like this. (laughs) And that's what he does. Now, if I was demanding perfection, my standard of perfection for vacuuming the house, Will would not be allowed to participate. He would have no part in it whatsoever. I would not want, I would not need his help. There would be no father-son bonding around the vacuum cleaner. Because he couldn't do the job that I wanted to get done in the time that I wanted to get done. He couldn't do it perfectly. But because he's my son, and because I love him, and because I delight in knowing that he wants to be with me, and he wants to help, and he's looking for ways that he can please me, then I, I'm just overjoyed to see him try. Now, ultimately, I'm the one doing the work. Will can't hold up the vacuum cleaner. I'm the one that is working with him to accomplish the task that is set before us. I am the one who will meet the expectation, but Will does it with me. That's what happens in our obedience. Nor is God simply interested in us legalistically following the rules. Just like, you know what? My heart's not in this. I don't want this. I think that it's stupid. I'd rather be doing other things, but just tell me what what it is, and I'll just go and do it. I'll hate every minute of these stinking rules that God gives me, but I'm going to do them. And when I do, God now owes me. That's not what God's looking for here. This is why walking as children of light requires discernment. We are to explore what pleases the Lord so that we might know him and love him and long to be with him and do these things that he's called us to, not to begrudgingly obey him. And nor is God interested in blind obedience. Uh, You know, I I don't know why I'm supposed to do what I do. I'm just supposed to do it. So just give me the list. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to do it, whatever. I'm just going to blindly kind of go through that and get it done because that's what God tells me to do. There's no relationship there, right? God's not interested in giving us case law saying, okay, if this is the situation, this is the case, then do this. And if that's the situation, that's the case, then do that. That's not what he's looking to do. He's not looking for mindless, heartless robots to do his every bidding. We are to desire him, to love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our mind. And all of our strength. And so that requires effort. That requires study. That requires wisdom. That requires resolve. That requires love. So obedience to him is not blindly following a list of rules. But by learning about who God is and carefully discerning why did God call us to this task by, by lovingly discerning 
uh, how to take the principles that we see in God's word and apply them to concrete situations in our lives. God's just not going to tell you because you prayed a prayer and being lazy about it what to do in that situation. No, God has given us principles that if we are longing to love the Lord and know the Lord and we seek him out, he will make his will known through the application of God's word to these concrete situations without telling you, you must do this on this date at this time because this is what I said. We do this not perfectly, not legalistically, not blindly, but because we love our Father and we want to be like Him. Therefore, we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That is how we are to walk as children of light, by knowing who our Father is, and by learning what is pleasing to Him, by remembering who we now are because of Christ, and by walking in that new identity as children of light, not seeking our own way, but delighting in learning and doing the will of our Heavenly Father who loves us. Now, as usual, that's my big first point. We must understand who we are in Christ so that we might walk in that new identity. And it's only when we first understand our identity that we can second take action and expose works of darkness. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so here we're given two commands. We are to take no part in darkness, but instead we are to expose it. Now, I don't think that I need to labor too much on the first command. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness because we've already, in some sense, dealt with that. We've been dealing with that for the last two weeks. Uh, in verse 1, we're told to imitate God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Last week, we saw in chapter 5, verse 7, that we are to not become partners with those who walk in darkness. We are not to practice sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness or idolatry because the works of darkness are unfruitful. They're futile. They are the opposite of what is good and right and true. These are shameful acts, works that people do in secret because they know that they are wrong. Works of darkness cannot please God, and they keep us enslaved to our sin, in the darkness. They cannot give us what they promise to give us, and God's wrath is upon them. So do not be deceived. If we're children of light, what does light have to do with darkness? If we're striving to walk as children of light, we will take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. The positive thing to this is rather than trying to avoid sin, why don't we just focus on pursuing the Lord, right? And make that our effort. Because if we're desiring and we're laboring to walk in the light as children of light, we won't take part in unfruitful works of darkness. Not that we won't engage with those who still walk in darkness, but we will not participate in their unfruitful works of darkness. Now that's pretty straightforward. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, that's easy enough to understand, but we all know that that's a whole lot harder to do. Many of us have experienced the shame of our unfruitful works of darkness. 
We have carried them out in secrets, and it has left us feeling dirty and unworthy and disgusted. I can never forgive myself. It's shameful even to speak of the things that I've done in secret. And we've tried to walk with one foot in the darkness and the other in the light. And it has brought us nothing but fear and despair and hopelessness. You know, maybe, maybe I ought to just give myself over to the darkness. I mean, how, how could I ever be pure? How could I ever really be forgiven? How could I ever change? How could I ever truly walk in the light? How could I ever, ever be light to other people, Christ's sacrifice or not? Well, the solution is a really simple one but a really humbling one. It is both easy and very, very difficult. He says that we are to expose them. We're to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness in our hearts and expose the unfruitful works of darkness in the world. Now, if you're, if you're a person that reads commentaries on, uh, on Ephesians, you know, we're kind of going through here. I just want to say that man, commentators can be really reductionistic on this passage. It's unfortunate because it's dealing with both, believer and unbeliever. Speaking to believers, telling them how to live in the world, in a dark and sinful world, and engage them with the light of the gospel. Read the whole of Ephesians. You'll get that. Okay? It, it frustrates me when I see people look at things so reductionistically. We are to expose the darkness, the works of darkness in our hearts, and work to expose the works of darkness in the world. Now, to expose, what does that mean? Well, it means to bring to light. It means to convict or to convince. It means to reprove or rebuke or at times even to discipline or reprove, to punish in a sense. We must expose the darkness in our hearts with the light of Christ by bringing the gospel to bear upon the sin that resides in our hearts. You have to understand that there will be no freedom from darkness if we continue to persist in keeping our sins secret, hiding them away from the light because we love those sins that are in the darkness more than we love the light. No, for us to walk in light and to have the freedom and blessings that come from the light, truth and knowledge and holiness and happiness in the Lord, we must expose the shameful hidden sins in our lives with the light of the gospel. We must allow the light of the gospel to penetrate the dark recesses of our hearts like a spotlight to reveal hidden idols and hidden loves and hidden longings that would betray us and keep us from Christ. And that means we must humbly and honestly expose it to others as well. Because this is not something that we can do on our own. We must openly and truthfully confess our sins to God and to those whom we have sinned against. We must realize that our hearts are deceitful. 
And we must entrust them to the help of faithful brothers and sisters who can help to shed the light of Christ upon the darkness of our hearts. And we've got to be wise there because they have to be able to point us to Christ. They have to be able to shed the light of the gospel onto our hearts, not to condemn us. But we need to expose it. We cannot and we will not truly live in light without it. We can try all we want to maintain that stance of one foot in the darkness and the other in the light. But if you stand there, darkness will overcome you. It will. All right? Half truth. Half knowledge, half-hearted holiness, half-hearted joy in the Lord is not what it means to walk in the light. That is ignorance. That is error. That is sin. That is evil. That is misery. That is darkness. So do not be deceived. Friends, we, we can't continue to walk in darkness. Don't, don't think that continuing to live in the futility of darkness is somehow going to achieve what you want it to achieve. The path toward light through, is, is through the exposure of the gospel upon your soul. Don't continue in the shame of secret hidden sins. Expose them to the light of Christ. Entrust your souls to your faithful creator and bear the shame of your sin no more. But not only are we to expose the works of darkness in our own lives to the light, but we are to participate in the mission of Christ to expose the works of darkness in the world. Now let's be honest here, okay? A lot of the times we don't do that because we don't do the former, right? If we're carrying all sorts of darkness in our own hearts, it's hard for us to call out the darkness that we see in others, is it not? I'm looking for affirmation here. Okay, thank you. All right. Now, we can't do that if we look and live and act just like the world. We have this difficult twofold task before us to humbly and carefully guard our own hearts from the influence of the world while yet shining light into the world. And although we are still vulnerable of tolerating and being influenced by sin, we have been given the light of Christ. And this light is far too brilliant and far too majestic and far too powerful to be contained. It sheds light on our own hearts, but it does not stop there. The light is not satisfied until it invades the entire world. That is the mission of Christ And so being children of light does not mean that we retreat into some holy huddle up on a mountaintop, far away from the darkness of the world below, thinking somehow that our separation and holy living are good deeds apart from engaging them and relating to them and confronting them and proclaiming the light of Christ to them will somehow result in sinners wanting to come to the light. They'll only see us as bigots. Read the media, and you know that's what they do. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that if we do nice 
solutions for them, but we ignore the fact that they're still in darkness, that they will see how nice we are and that they will want to be nice too. That's not the point. No, they need the light of Christ and we are to bring it to them. You have to understand that we are not lighthouses way up in the distance, up on the hill, shining this light around that they can choose to ignore and hide in the shadows. No, we are lampstands meant to be right there in and among them, but not one of them, relating to them, engaging with them, shining the light of Christ into their living rooms, into their bedrooms, but yet not compromising the light or snuffing it out in the darkness. We are to speak the truth in love to them in order to help them to see the futility of a life lived in darkness. We are to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ by humbly taking first the plank out of our own eyes so that we can clearly see to admonish and rebuke and exhort and reprove and even if times it necessary to repent, or I'm sorry, to discipline the unrepentant for the glory of God and the good of others and their own good because we love them. But that also means like tope colioso that we go and we take our little light out into an overwhelming land of darkness to shine forth the light of Christ. Whether that be on the remote plains of Nigeria or to our neighbors that share our own backyard. Friends, God has put people in your lives who are living in darkness. And they are committing sins so destructive, that it is shameful even to speak of them. And what he means there is that not that we are to not speak of their sin or their shame, but that these sins that they commit are destructive. They are a scandalous plague, crushing their souls grinding them under the weight of overwhelming guilt and enslaving soul-killing lusts. And the wrath of God is upon them. Though they have suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness, though they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have chosen to worship and serve the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and they are burdened with feelings of disgrace and humiliation. That is part of why they commit those things in secret. Part of it is because they love their sin and they want to perform their their works of sin. They want to worship their sin and apart from accountability. And so they do that in secret. But the other reason is because they are filled with shame and disgrace and they are burdened and plagued by their sin. And you could be the light to help them to see that you do not have to live in that enslavery anymore. We are to be light in the Lord, called to shine the light of life upon them with grace, with patience, and with compassion, and humility, and love, and purity, and holiness, but with boldness, loving them enough to say hard things so that they might come to know the truth and beauty of Jesus. That's what it means when it says, rather, Expose them. 
who we are as children of light leads us to take action by exposing the darkness, the darkness in our hearts, the darkness of those around us, the darkness, the world. But we do so with a promise. Third, the good news is that we can trust in the light of Christ to transform hearts. Verses 13 and 14 are both a promise and an affirmation. But if, there, but if anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The alternative to hopelessly continuing in sin and shame, practicing these sinful works of darkness, is to expose them to the light. But when the light of the gospel comes to bear on the dark, then darkness is exposed. It is seen for what it is. It is made visible. It is illuminated. Now we can tell. Now we know what's there. Now we know what it wants. The gospel exposes the shame and the futility and the hopelessness of our sin. We can now see the idols of our hearts and how they cannot give us what they promised to give us. And so at that point, we are left with two options. We can either reject the truth that the gospel has revealed to us, though it has shown the the reality of the darkness and the futility of the darkness. And so in the case of those who do not follow Christ, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But for those who profess Christ, we can now though we clearly see the futility and consequence of our sin, can minimize it. We can dismiss it. We can deny it or reject it, even though it is evident. And instead, follow our lusts back into the darkness, loving the darkness more than the light. Or, we can take the path that is laid out in verse 13. When we truly accept what the light has revealed to us, when the gospel has illuminated our hearts to see the darkness that is within us, we affirm its futility and destruction. We affirm the hope that comes from the light. And that which has now become visible, when we affirm it, when we accept it, when we respond in repentance and faith and moving forward and enlisting help and trying to, by the grace of God, strive towards holiness, then the, God, then the gospel says that that which is now visible is transformed into light. Darkness becomes light. That it is darkness through exposure to the gospel becomes visible, and what is visible, when affirmed, is transformed. It is changed. That happens when the gospel, with the gospel for those who are children of darkness, when the light of the gospel shines in their hearts to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At that point, those people who were once in darkness were delivered from the domain of darkness to behold and to be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But that happens when the light of the gospel shines on children of light who have taken part in unfruitful works of darkness and have been convicted by their sin and have responded in repentance and faith and have confessed their sin, asking for forgiveness and striving by faith for holiness in the Lord. Friends, that's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul, writing to believers, says this, 
Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's speaking to believers. The Christian life is a fight of faith. That Christ doesn't just save us from the shame or the consequences of our sin or the darkness of our hearts so that we can continue to walk in the darkness. He came to transform that darkness into light. And that is a process. It's a process of exposure and affirmation and repentance and faith and a change of heart and attitude and practice as we continue to behold the glory of the Lord, we are then transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Though the work, or through the work of the Holy Spirit, what was once darkness becomes the light of Christ. It's in light of that promise and affirmation that Paul gives this statement. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now many commentators think that Paul is quoting from an early, now non-existent Christian baptismal hymn, but I I think that there's more to it. I agree with G.K. Beale and Peter O'Brien that Paul is actually providing us with a Christ-centered biblical theology of the book of Isaiah. I don't have time to get into that at all. all right, but he's taking a number of prophecies in Isaiah, written some 700 years before Jesus, and he is applying them to us in light of Christ. I'm going to have to save that for a blog post, but let me just say that this in closing. That this morning, in your hearing, the light of the gospel has come upon you. It is descended upon every person in this room. Do not be deceived into thinking that there is no God. Or that if there is a God that he does not care about you or your actions. Do not pretend as though you have time. Or that as long as I have professed Christ that it does not matter then how I live. God has spoken to us through his word. He has revealed himself to us through his son. He has made a way for us to turn away from the futile life of darkness, to live with him forever in light through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The long-awaited promise of redemption has been fulfilled. The light has come, and it is gleaming down upon us. So do not turn back to darkness, but awake, O sleeper, from your darkened slumber. Arise from the death of sin. Arise, 
shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you to deliver you from darkness of sin and to bless you and keep you as you behold his glory. And so trust in him as you live as light in the world to transform hearts, to transform your hearts, to transform our lives, our hearts together, and to transform those hearts of those who still remain in darkness. We can go with that hope, with that promise, and so let us go boldly as we go from here as children of light, armed with the promises of this text, and walk as children of light. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would not be blinded to the truth of your word. That we would not be swayed or deceived by the allurements of the darkness. And thinking that life lived without you is okay. Lord, I pray that the light would truly be shining upon us and that we would see the darkness for what it is, that we would see its futility, that we would see its hopelessness, that we would see that it cannot satisfy and is but dust. Lord, I pray that we would long for the light. Lord, we ask that you do a work in our hearts, that they would be exposed to the gospel. And that they would be transformed into light. We know this is from you. And so we ask, Lord, to do it in your power, for your glory, for the good of others, and for our joy. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.